Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work. Well, hello. Welcome to show 355 from Engage for Success. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be talking about the three barriers to women's progression uh, in the workplace to, to senior roles. And uh, to help us explore that topic is Sharon Peake. Sharon is Managing Director of an organization called Shape Talent um, and is going to be sharing with us um, not only her, um, in her views and, and take on the subject, but also the research that has gone into developing um, what she sees as being a model to uh, the, the barriers that really get in the way of women's progression. Uh, so welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you very much, Joe. Great to join you. That's uh, that's a bit of a tongue twister. I realise as I start to say it. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Uh, I, think we, I think I I think I got through that all right. Just about. I think you so. Did. <laughs> um, so looking forward to this. I think you know it's a it's a topic that will be close to many of our listeners' hearts, um, and um, even the uh, the other fifty percent who it won't be. Um, it ought to be. So um, sit up and take note. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself first. So I am an, a chartered occupational psychologist. Uh, I'm also a coach and my background is in HR roles in, in big blue chip corporate. So prior to setting up Shape Talent a few years ago, I, I spent about 20 years in a couple of FTSE 40 businesses. I held various uh, senior HR roles, group head of talent management roles um, that spanned all sorts of things from diversity through to career management, succession planning, recruitment, uh, psychometric assessment. Uh, but I've been interested in gender diversity for many, many years. And uh, in 2017, I set up Shape Talent to really address that issue and to, to help organisations to, uh, to uh, accelerate women into senior leadership roles and get more women into roles at the top. Mm-hmm. Okay. And have you, have you seen a, uh, a change over that time? Has it, has it been a, a gradual appreciation of the, the importance of this? Or has... has the the agenda moved in a in a kind of um, peaks and 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 stops and starts kind of way. Well, look, I I think there has been definitely an improvement over the time that I've been watching this closely, which would be around the last ten years. I think there's definitely been a positive improvement. There's much more. Um, regulatory pressure and support on this. You've got gender pay gap reporting. You've got various name and shame approaches, such as mm-hmm. the what used to be the Davies report, now the Hampton Alexander reports. It kind of ranks organisations, public organisations, in terms of women on boards, women in senior leadership roles. So there's a lot more scrutiny, and with scrutiny comes progress. So there's definitely progress in the right direction. My mm-hmm. challenge is it's not happening fast enough. So. This year, the World Economic Forum estimated we're still 99.5 years away from gender equality globally if we let things progress at the current rate of progression, uh, if, if you would call it that. So yeah. there is change. It's just, to my mind, not quick enough. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So we've yeah, so you combine that with with um, by the time that happens, we'll be past the barrier, the point of no return when it comes to the environment, won't we? So it won't matter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's quite a depressing thought. 
<laughs> yes, it is, isn't it? Sorry, no, we'll, let's move on and talk positively. So we're going we're gonna to be talking about the, the research around what you call the three barriers model. Um, could, you, could you just tell us a little bit about that? And then I, then I want to bring us sort of right up to date, actually, and, and talk about the current situation and what we're all going through at the moment with COVID-19. Yeah, sure. So maybe a bit of context as to how this model came about. I, um, as I said, I've been interested in gender equality for a number of years. And in my last in-house uh, corporate HR role, uh, I worked for a brewing company. It was a global company, operated in 80 countries around the world. But the nature of brewing is that it's quite a male-dominated industry. Um, mm -hmm. We had 70,000 employees and 81% of them were men in our global workforce. So very, very um, male dominated. And I, I entered that organization in 2011. And, you know, at the time, there was much more pressure on gender diversity. And I, I started asking, you know, why aren't there more women in the industry? Why aren't there more women at the top? And I heard responses like, oh, women just don't like this industry. It's not for them. Or, you know, women, you know, have babies, and then they don't want to come back to work, or they're not mm -hmm. as ambitious after that. And I just mm -hmm. thought that doesn't, that doesn't sound right to me. And so, my team and I at the time uh, did a, a huge literature review to understand from the evidence, from the research that was out there, what was really getting in the way of women's progression. And we came up with some factors, which are the, um, the early version of the three barriers model. And we tested that in our business. So we went around the world from Latin America to Africa to Europe to Australia to India. We tested this model to see you know, if it held up. And we found that it did. It varied a little around the world. Um, mm -hmm. The emphasis of different barriers varied, but it held up. Right. So, so despite, then, despite the kind of cultural differences around actual geographic locations, there were, there were slight nuances, but generally speaking, the, the, the model was robust. Yeah, I mean, since then, we've refined the model. So the, the three barriers are barriers that exist at a societal level, an organisational level, and a personal level, the, the, the barriers that affect women ourselves. And what mm -hmm. we found is, particularly at a societal level, those barriers might be greater or lesser in different countries. So the, right. the expectations placed on women might and, and do vary quite considerably if you're in Asia versus uh, Europe versus Latin mm -hmm. America versus Africa. So, the, you know, from that point of view, there are differences, but all three categories still we found held up around the world okay. in different countries. Interesting. Um, Interesting. So that was, that was really the early work. We, we tested that. We applied a range of interventions. By Over a course of three years, we managed to get women's representation at executive level up to 30%, which was a huge shift from where it was. Yeah. And I, I thought if we could do this in an industry that is so male-dominated – Actually, this is possible anywhere. And I think one of the reasons that organizations aren't making greater progress is often they don't really know what's behind the gender imbalance in their companies. Mm. And they, they spend a lot of time and effort fixing the wrong problems. And so I set up Shape Talent. We refined the three barriers model. Um, and it's all about really um, helping organizations to demystify what's getting in the way and help them make progress at a far greater rate than we're seeing now. Mm. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute, I think. But so, but would you say then, and this is a real generalisation, but would you say that it's not so much um, that people don't want to do these, make change, um, they perhaps don't know how to go about it or try and fix the wrong things? 
So it's, it's like yeah. the, the, the spirit is willing, but the but the head is weak or whatever. You know, <laughs> I think um, by and large, yes, that is true. And and certainly there are occasionally people I come across who really don't see it as an issue or don't want to focus on it. But I think by mm. and large, most companies I come across are very, very willing to engage. In fact, they're desperate to make positive changes, but they just don't know where to start. It can be a bit overwhelming, actually. Actually, you know, there's so many things you read in the press about what's really going on. It's very opinion based, which is why we actually decided to take an evidence based approach, because when you work at the level of opinions, it's easy to get, you know, um, shifted from one view to another and not really know what's going on. But when you take yeah. it down to a, a level of evidence and research, it's very clear, actually, what some of these barriers are. So I think you're right, Joe. I think it is a lack of understanding as to what organisations can do that is the greatest problem here, rather than a lack of will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to talk about the three barriers in a little bit more depth in, in a moment, but can we just um, just stop for a moment and just talk about where we are as a, as a world, um, COVID-19, um, mm -hmm. and uh, so many of us have sort of thrown the, the traditional concept of the workplace up in the air um, and sort of let it fall down where it will and be working from home or being furloughed and all sorts of things going on and and, and of course it's a huge amount of uncertainty um, about what the future is going to hold for, for people um, what do you think's been the impact um, as far as women particularly is concerned well I, I think there are some early impacts that we're seeing and I know it, it feels like we've been in this forever but it's still relative early days in historical mm. terms we're kind of four months in and so we will see the the impacts as they develop over time but already we are seeing that COVID-19 is having a disproportionately negative impact on women um, so uh, one research report that I read just in the last day actually talked about women are picking up at least in the UK an hour more a day of child care responsibilities than, than the men in the same household are um, mm -hmm. so and that this is I'm something that happens anyway well this is this is additional child care so there's a very interesting study by the international labor organization um, that shows that on average in the uk women do almost four hours of unpaid domestic work a day so child care uh, uh -huh. domestic chores and so forth so you know, cooking mm -hmm. and, and so forth so this mm -hmm. is this is additional work because of COVID so women right. are picking up uh, an hour more a day than men we we know that women are more likely to be furloughed than men we know that women mm -hmm. are more likely to be let go than men um, and so these all these issues have the potential of you know storing up some of the gender inequality issues and and um, exacerbating them over time. So we see the potential here. If this continues, we see the potential for the gender pay gap to be widened. We see the potential mm -hmm. for women to lose out in terms of their long-term career earnings. So mm -hmm. it is early days, but there are already some, some fairly negative um, gender differences coming out of this. Coming through. It's interesting you talk about the gender pay gap. I think, am I right in saying that the, the reporting deadlines got um, got postponed as a result of COVID? Yeah, I mean, if the reporting deadline was early April. And of course, that in the UK, that was right in the early days of the pandemic and lockdown. And so um, the government took the view that if organisations, you know, were too busy focusing on, you know, how to furlough their workforce or, or dealing with their workforce, then they didn't have to report, which 
on one level is understandable on another level I think it's quite disappointing actually because it you know it gives a bit of an easy way out for organizations who should have been tracking it and should have been easily able to report on it anyway so you know on the yeah. one hand I get it on the other hand actually it would have been helpful to continue yes interesting we had a we had somebody on the radio show literally that that week um, specifically talking about it so perhaps uh, I should uh, point listeners back to that archive as well um, if they're interested in learning more about the subject mm. so so let, let's talk about the barriers then T- tell us a little bit more detail about them the three okay okay so um so a bit of context here so women are um, underrepresented in the most senior levels of leadership. So just a few UK stats, all women account for only 23% of executive team members in the FTSE 100, and they account for only 5% of CEOs in the FTSE 100. Um, And women are, uh, men are 4.5 times more likely to make it onto an executive committee role than a woman who starts her career at the same time. So we know that the more senior you go in organizations, the greater the disparity in terms of uh, men and women. So Mm -hmm. the the research that we did was really in order to answer that question of why. So why is it that women are less represented at the top? And so Mm -hmm. the three, three tiers of these barriers start with societal barriers. So these are the, the subtle the often unspoken cultural messages that we all receive over our lifetime that reinforce the ways in which men and women ought to behave. So mm-hmm. you know, who cares for children, who does the domestic tasks, who takes time off um, to care for a child after you know, a child is born, um, how men and women should act and behave. And largely it's these stereotypes and these kind of cultural messages that perpetuate this this stereotype about men take charge and women take care. So men are about kind of driving things forward and women are about caring for others. Um, And those gender stereotypes are are pretty toxic and they really undermine progress in the workforce. So, So at a societal level, you've got these messages that we grow up with and that we see in the media and that are kind of perpetuated everywhere we go in the workplace and outside the workplace. Um, then we have organizational barriers. So this is the, the second tier of barrier, and this is what's going on inside of organizations. So again, there are cultural barriers. So mm-hmm. um, often the cultural barriers in organizations are around this culture of always being on and always being available and contactable, um, you know, regardless of whether it's the weekend or whether you're on holiday or whether it's out of hours. Yeah. So if if there are cultures that kind of uh, uh, exaggerate, uh, kind of um, encouraging that behaviour, it makes it really difficult for women. So I mentioned before that the ILO does this report that shows that women do almost four hours of unpaid work a day. Well, men do almost two hours of unpaid work. So women are doing twice as much unpaid mm-hmm. work in the household as men. So if you combine that with the fact that your organization is always expecting you to be available. It physically makes it hard to fit it all in. And that's what yeah. is known as the double burden or the second shift for women. Right, so right. Because yeah. there are only 24 hours in a day. Right? There, there are only so many hours in the day. And some, for some women, they just say, actually, I don't have enough time to do it all. So something's going to give. And mm. for a lot of women, it will be you know, they will reduce their ambitions or decide to progress their career at a slower rate or stall their career because they just don't feel they can do it all. 
Mm. So that's, that's some of the cultural barriers. There are, there are other things that go on in organizations um, around kind of everyday sexism or microaggressions uh, or micro inequities, as they're sometimes called, which mm. is kind of those, those really small things that happen, those small experiences that you don't feel uh, justify being called out, but are, are really undermining, like being talked over in a meeting or mm-hmm. constantly being interrupted or being mistaken for someone more junior. So mm-hmm. if you've got that going on in the workforce it can, or in the workplace, it can be a real deterrent for women. It just makes it harder for women. And then the other thing that goes on in organizations is you get some structural barriers as well. So we know from research that, that networks, which are really important in terms of how you progress your career, that old adage of it's who you know, what not you know, mm-hmm. not what you know that matters. Networks are really important, but networks are segmented by gender and also by race. So as a woman, it's harder to access the networks of the kind of the most powerful, the most influential people in the organization. So structurally, that's a barrier. And also women also don't get access to the same career experiences and opportunities often as men. So either they're not selected or sometimes we don't put our hand up for them. We don't think we're ready. And so when you miss out on the most critical career enhancing experiences, it can slow down your rate of progression. Yes, yes. And would, and so would you say, sorry, sorry, go on, I was interrupting you. I, I was going to say then the, the third category is around uh, personal barriers, which are some of the things or some of the ways that we as women hold ourselves back. Um, mm. And, you know, to my last point, it could be about being reticent to put your hand up for a promotion or a high profile opportunity. Um, it might be women's tendency to disengage from organizational politics, which is actually a really important way of navigating your career. Um, mm-hmm. And it can be things like struggling with the sense of not being liked. So we know from research that the more successful men are, the more likable they are generally. There's a positive correlation between success and likability. But for women, there's a negative correlation. So for women, the more successful you are, the more you progress into leadership ranks, the less likable you are. And that's incredibly off-putting for a lot of women because, you know, it, again, it's just one of those things that makes it harder for a woman yeah. to, to do her job and to, to go home feeling satisfied and challenged and feeling like she's doing a good job. Yes, yes. It's interesting, isn't it? Some, some, it's, it's very easy sometimes to imagine that some of these things you talk about are um, not, not quite urban myths, but, you know, the sense that uh, women uh, worry more about being liked than men do. Um, and, I, and I wonder to what extent that's true, whether it's the fact that actually we get, we get a bad press when we're successful, so we worry about not being liked. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, look, it's a really nuanced topic, but I, I think at the heart of this is the fact that there is a, a, a very subtle social penalty when a woman acts out of stereotypes. Mm. So when a woman mm. does anything that is traditionally associated with um, uh, masculinity and, and leadership is one of those things, assertiveness mm. is another. Mm. So when a woman yes. acts in a, an assertive or a decisive or a driving way, she's acting out of gender stereotype. And what's really interesting study after study has found that both men and women will penalize that woman for that. So there is these, these kind of unconscious kind of biases that we all have that say to us, well, actually she should be 
in a more nurturing, uh, nurturing, caring role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. End of a long day. Um, and she's not. And that's so word, actually, the, <laughs> it's a new word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so it is, if she's acting. So yeah, go on, Joe. Yeah, I was going to say it's the classic sort of thing that women, an assertive woman, is described as aggressive, and um, uh, you know, an assertive man is an assertive man, and um, you know, it's, exactly. it's, it's all labels that just come come tumbling out without really exactly. people giving them thought, whether it's thought about how they use them or thought about their own unconscious biases that you're describing. Absolutely. Um, so one of the questions I was going to ask you, Sharon, was it to what extent are these these three barriers are, are they are they all of equal weight um it depends where you go so one of the the very first things that i suggest um, my clients do and anyone that's listening does is to understand what are the the specific barriers that are playing out in your organizations because it varies by organization. I, uh, one of the first things I do with my clients is I'll do a diagnostic. So we'll look at their data, we'll pull data on you know, their recruitment, their promotion, their terminations, their representation at different level, and we'll also get qualitative data. We'll speak with women and understand what's going on. Um, mm-hmm. And so we start there because otherwise you're at risk of throwing money and energy at the wrong problem, solving the wrong problems. Um, But what I typically find is there's always elements of each. There's always elements of societal issues, of organisational issues and of personal barriers as well. Um, It's just the degree to which they vary also by country. So I alluded earlier to the fact that societal barriers are much more pronounced in some parts of the world. Um, But there are always things going on within companies that can be changed. And, you know, it's tempting for some some people to say, well, actually, it's just the way society is. And, you know, it's difficult in my country. And therefore, what's the point? But there are always Mm -hmm. things going on at an organizational level that can help to redress the balance. Yes. Yes. They can either compound or they can um, mitigate Exactly. Depending on your point of view and depending on your attitude, I guess. So you you touched on earlier. Um, you talked about um, racial uh, obstacles towards racial diversity as well. And and clearly at the moment, you know, we're talking, and rightly so, um, a considerable amount of discussions around Black Lives Matter and looking at workplaces in that context. Uh, would you say that these three barriers are? transferable into that context as well or or they does it does it do would you need to approach things slightly differently there it's it's a really good question and I think it's a very relevant question for our times as you say there's a lot you know rightly so there's a a huge amount of momentum going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and I the, the short answer is I don't know scientifically because when mm. we created what is now the three barriers model, and, and by the way, I should give some credit to my former colleague and friend Liz Dixon, who was a big part of uh, this model being created in the, the early days. But when okay. we first um, approached this, um, it was very much about gender. So all of our literature mm. review and our research was around gender. So I, I don't know if they apply equally, but my hypothesis is that they probably do. And there are certain things that we know you know the two movements if you like have in common so both 
Yeah, both um, groups are underrepresented in the workplace. Uh, both groups face unconscious biases and stereotypes which disadvantage them. Um, and, mm -hmm. and stereotypes are one of the most toxic um, things that, that are playing out in terms of women's underrepresentation. And I dare say it's exactly the same when it comes to race. Um, but the other thing I would probably say here is that let's not forget the concept of intersectionality, which is, you know, we're all different and we all bring different attributes and experiences um, you know the experience of, of me as a white woman is going to be different to the experience of a woman of color or mm -hmm. um, you know the experiences of the LGBT community are going to be different as well and and when you are when you have different minority characteristics the bias and the stereotypes are accentuated and the challenge is even greater so there was a very interesting study that the lean in organization did in 2018 about the microaggressions that women face in the workplace and mm -hmm. they found that almost two-thirds of women face microaggressions on a regular basis 64% uh, but when it comes to lesbian women it's 71% so every time you add on a minority layer and you could yeah. easily add on race they didn't um, cover race in that study but I'm imagine the minute you add that on the microaggressions kind of increase so you just you just notched it up ratcheted up a few notches exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I've not heard the phrase microaggressions micro before, but I absolutely recognise what you're talking about. Mm. It, um, Sometimes they're called micro inequities. Yeah, I shall. Um, I shall have to have a go and have a look at this. So we've got just um, just under five minutes left, uh, Sharon. So I want to focus now a little bit on on what we can what we can be doing. Because um, you yeah. painted a picture of of, of the, the barriers and 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 the world, um, and I'd like to start first of all. And you've you've talked about how when you work with organisations, one of the first things you do is a little bit of diagnostic because you don't want um, one of the big mistakes is you start your head might be in the right or your heart's in the right place and you start focusing on but you start focusing on the wrong areas. So you've got to understand mm -hmm. where you need to to focus. So that that. That can make sense. Um, how how much of it is how important is it for people who are already in that leadership role to um, take positive action um, rather than sort of you know pull up the drawbridge behind them? <laughs> well, I, I expect you will expect me to say that it is hugely important. And, you know, leaders, whether they're men or women, can and must, you know, help to remedy this. And there's some some very small but quite powerful things that all leaders can do that, that really help address some of these unconscious behaviours that are quite harmful. So mm -hmm. if, if we stick with microaggressions for a moment, calling them out uh, is a really simple thing that leaders can do to stop it happening. So, you know, if you and I are in a conversation and someone cuts into what you're saying and talks over you, you know, I might, I might say as a leader, you know, I'm really interested to hear what Joe was saying. You know, she was interrupted. Can we let her finish what she was saying? And that very mm. act of saying that sends a very powerful message firstly, but it also starts to signal a very different way of communicating. And so simple things like that can have a huge impact. Calling yes. out inappropriate statements, calling out inappropriate borderline jokes, you know, making sure women get credit for the ideas that they put forward. All of those things are, are very small, easy things that leaders mm. can do. Do you think, though, Sharon, that the average male 
exec team member actually knows what those microaggressions are or realizes realizes the impact of them and realizes that the solution to you know doing what you're suggesting would make do they really do they understand that doing what you're suggesting could make such an enormous difference I, I don't think they do, and this is no um, discredit to you know senior leaders the yeah. world over. But I, I just think if you're in the majority group, so if you're a male leader and you've never experienced these things, you don't notice them necessarily. You don't you no. don't understand the impact that they have. And I think awareness raising is one of the first things that has to go on in organisations to to help listen to some of the experiences of women to hear what's going on, so that there is a better understanding that these things actually exist if you don't know they exist then you're unable to do anything to to solve them so I think you're absolutely right I think kind of we've got to get leaders to see that these things are happening Um, and usually my experience when leaders understand these things are happening and they hear it from their spouses and if they've got adult children in the workplace if they hear it from people around them that they know and trust then all of a sudden the penny drops and they Mm. they are motivated to want to do something about them okay yeah. yeah. So let's just finish. We've got just over a minute left. Um, what can a woman listening to the show, recognizing everything you're describing, what can they do to uh, start to move the, the dial on this for themselves? So there's lots of things I think they can do. If I was to pick out just a couple, I would say... Um, Put your hand up for your for the next step, the promotion before you feel ready. You know, it's a mm-hmm. complete myth that you have to wait until you meet 100% of the criteria. Men don't. <laughs> you don't need to <laughs> put your hand yeah. up. Um, and I would also say get a sponsor. So not just a mentor, but a sponsor um, is someone who will use their power for you. So not just give you career advice, but actually help mm-hmm. open doors, you know, expose you to their network. Um, talk about you positively in promotion rounds. So get yourself mm-hmm. a sponsor, someone in the organisation who can help you with your career progression. How do you do that? How do you find um, a sponsor? What do you, you know, what's, what do you do to go about doing So in the, in the 30 seconds that we've got left, I think mm. it starts 18, with finding... <laughs> it starts with finding a mentor. There's a continuum of mentoring and sponsorship, um, but mm-hmm. it needs to be someone in your organisation who's a couple of levels more senior than you. So start by finding someone who will mentor you, and once they get to know you and trust you, they can then start to use their power. If you don't have a sponsorship, a mentoring program in your organisation, suggest to HR that you get one. Get one. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Thank you very much, Sharon Peake, Managing Director of Shape Talent. That's been really insightful. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and goodbye. Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there's a better way to work.